August on Wall Street ends today exactly how it started, on a down note. We saw all three major indices down for the month, with the Nasdaq posting the worst month in 2023. But Treasuries are actually up today, and we have a guest expert that's going to tell us all about it and why you should be concerned going forward. We have Jim Bianco from Bianco Research joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. Jim, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And with me, obviously, is Toby Smith out in Park City, Utah. He is vacationing. Well, we did manage to pull him into a studio today. I so I got to start. <laughs> I wouldn't miss a moment to be with the great James Bianco. And I would just like to say, in the 100 times I've seen him on CNBC, Bloomberg, every other, it's the first time I've seen him freaking smile. So I love it. <laughs> By the way, this is an exclusive, too, because this That's will right. be headline news take a spill, when this goes out. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Jim, I know you, with the research company, your founder and president, you are uh, you really are catering to that institutional set. It's very highbrow, very cerebral. Can you give the audience just maybe a, a brief two-minute explanation of what your firm does? Yeah, we are a macro research firm, which means that we look at the big trends in the markets. We look at the big trends in the economy. Uh, we look at even political trends from time to time. We comment on uh, you know things from Federal Reserve policy to technicals in the market. Um, you know, to the fundamentals of some of the economic data and try to provide insight as to where that's going to go. That type of analysis tends to lend itself more towards the fixed income crowd than the equity crowd. So predominance of our investor or clients and our fixed income investors, although not all, I mean, we have a fair number of uh, equity investors too. You know, okay, uh, that's a great Todd, I'd just like to ahead, add Toby. in that many times our audience or any audience doesn't quite realize that the stock market is this big and the bond market is this big, uh, you know, probably what now, Jim, a hundred times larger the, 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 the total bond market than the stock market. It, it depends on how you define it, but it, it definitely gets bigger. And, you know, something else a lot of people don't realize about the bond market. How much money do you need to manage a billion dollars in the bond market? None. None. It's all leverage. It, you can <laughs> leverage the bond market to infinity and uh, is, you could call Goldman Sachs. I could say, hi, hey, I'm Jim Bianco. I'd like to buy a billion dollars worth of bonds. Oh, you're Jim Dunn. Do I actually need any more than a dollar? Not necessarily. Equity market, you need at least to have half a billion dollars to buy a billion dollars right. worth of stocks. So there's a lot well, of leverage in the bond market well, as you well, make too. A, you make a, a great point. And, and again, uh, I, I know uh, Rick Santelli and other guys who are bond uh, mavens. Rick will never say that on CNBC <laughs> because- because his entire rap is, you know, a basis point, one one hundredth of a of a percent, um, da, 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 da. But the, the days that I see yields, you know, just explode means that somebody was, you know, wrong of the wrong way and they had to close out right then. And they went to 120 percent leverage, which is a no go. People don't quite understand why it, it's so volatile. And you nailed it on the head. I want to ask you the first question, which is we have obviously now gone out of the uh, zero interest rate world and you know, now 550 basis points later, blah, blah, blah. But nobody talks about the fact that we also had the quantitative eating, easing. Did I say eating? Quantitative easing <laughs> for 12 years. And all of a sudden we reversed that. And now we're, you know, we're putting a trillion dollars or, or selling to trillion or two trillion. Why isn't the bond market, you know, higher yields? I, I don't understand. Well, let's let's talk about where the bond market is. I mean, the 
The metric that bond investors use is total return. That is the coupon that you get plus the price change. And in 2022, that was the worst year in recorded history. It was Mm -hmm. a disaster for the bond market because largely because not only did prices go down, but you had no coupon cushion to start the year with anyway. This year is a little different because there is a coupon. You're getting 5%. So if prices go down 5%, you get a 5% coupon, you wind up with a zero return. Last year, prices went down 5%, you had a 5% loss. So it's a it's a it's a much different uh, year. But yeah. so the bond market has been struggling uh quite a bit. Now, I argue that what the Fed has been doing with quantitative tightening is they've been reducing their balance sheet by $95 billion a month. Now, how do they do that? They got a $7.5 trillion balance sheet. They have over $100 billion worth of bonds that mature every month. They just buy whatever matures, they buy back less $95 billion. So they're not selling. They're not selling anything. They're just buying back less. So what the bond market is suffering from is the loss of a buyer. And rates... And on a total return basis, the bond market on a total return basis, worst year ever, just from the loss of a buyer. We actually haven't had any selling. And by the way, I think the Fed is happy with what they've been doing so far because it's kind of in the background and it's running and they like the idea that they're reducing their balance sheet. They've always been uncomfortable with this gigantic bloated balance sheet owning 25% of the bond market. It's what the Fed did. They want to get it down. They want to get it down without as little disruption as possible. And for the moment, they've been accomplishing that. Well, so hold it. Great explanation. Go ahead, Toby. A quick question for you, though, Jim. So, twenty-five percent of the entire bond market held by the Fed. What is a comfortable number? Well, it was about uh, before the financial crisis of two thousand eight. It was about ten percent, maybe eight percent, somewhere in that range. So, it is much, much bigger than it has been historically uh, in the post-crisis. That's post two thousand eight crisis. It's been going up. It was in the high teens before COVID. And then when they did that enormous amount of buying during like March and April of 2020 into 21, then they shot it up into the mid 20s. Uh, So it has been a big number. By the way, I might add that globally, if you were to look at uh, global central banks, because of the enormous amount of bonds that the Bank of Japan owns, Bank of Japan owns over half their bond market. It's more like 30, low 30 percent range or so is what these numbers are. These are uncomfortably high numbers for all of these central banks, and they'd like to see them come down because you know they don't want to be that big an influence on their bond markets. But unfortunately, they are, which is why we obsess about you know what Chairman Powell says and what Christine Lagarde says so much because you know, they are the new bond kings. You know, it, it's not Bill Gross or Jeff Gunlock anymore. Bill it's the Gross, central I love it. Don't tell Bill Gross that, by the way. That'll piss him off. <laughs> oh, I think he'd agree with I think he'd agree with that, that the central bankers are the true bond kings. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jim, you've um, so you've been putting out numbers that you see the 10% at the four and a half to 5% rate. What, what's the analysis behind that? I'm sorry, what, which numbers are you, we referring to? I, I, I was just reading off uh, a quote you had on CNBC that you said, that you were seeing the 10-year stabilize at four and a half to 5% yield. Yes. Simple analysis. Uh, you know, let's take it the way that the Fed looks at it. The Fed, you know, Chairman Powell spoke in uh, Jackson Hole last week. The first sentence is, that he said, or maybe the second sentence was, we're strongly committed to our 2% inflation target and we will get there. 
and then the rest of the speech was a forensic analysis of various parts of CPI and stuff like that. But we call that a nothing burger, by the way, Jim. Right, right. I, I would have liked him to make the argument to me as to why do you still think 2% is still the target? Now, the reason I bring that up is I believe we could delve into this. Yeah. Three to three yeah. and a half percent, three to three and a half percent is the new target for um, uh, inflation, not two. That's a big difference. Why? Because the Fed You're is a heretic, to... Jim. You're a heretic. You're right. Well, I, I know. Well, I talked to so many people that invest in AI and invest in, you know, zero DTE or daily options that, man, if it doesn't move 85% in four minutes, it's, 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 it's it might as well be a, a money market fund. Right, right. Uh, you know, but, uh, uh, but, you know, so if you're talking about 3% inflation world, the Fed has already told us that means that the fair or the uh, neutral funds rate is three to three and a half to four in a normalized environment for the uh, yield curve. When it gets back to 150 basis points, that means the fair value of the 10 year note is four and a half to five percent. We're at 410. We're not near fair value. This rise in rates that we've seen hasn't even gotten to fair value yet on the assumption we are in an elevated inflation world. Now, most of Wall Street doesn't believe that assumption that we're in an elevated inflation world. Most of Wall Street has been dead wrong on everything they've said yeah. about inflation for the last three years. <laughs> but, you know, why let an 0 for 50 streak at the plate matter? Put me in the four hole and let me hit again, coach. I'm going to get right. a hit this time. Yeah, I know. Go Cubs. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, Jim, when, when <clears throat> I mean, there's so many parts of this inflation, inflation part. The one that I'm still stuck on is that when you look at CPE or CPI for that matter, but the Fed looks at CPE, shelter PCE. cost is still PCE. about 40%. Uh, PCE, Toby. Yes, of, I'm sorry, of the calculation. And you know, one thing in theory was if a mortgage is 7.5% today and it was 3.5% three years ago, the person's not going to sell their house and therefore we have nothing on the market, et cetera. Well, when you raise these rates that way, wouldn't you have a formula that would sort of say that the actual available homes for sale would go down and therefore, um, you know, prices would go up, which would F up. That's my technical term for the whole shelter part. But can't you, what, what, 115 economists there for Christ's sake, nobody had a formula that said this? Well, they did. And yes, you're right. When rates went up, the golden handcuffs, as they're calling it, is this yeah. the the, you know, who who would have ever thought that a three or four percent mortgage is now a handcuff, uh, you know, because nobody wants to sell their home with a three or four percent mortgage because then you got to buy another home with a seven or eight percent mortgage and you're going to have a 40 percent higher um, yeah, monthly. monthly monthly cost, assuming that you bought a house for the same for the same value of the house that you sold it for. Um, the, by the way, just as an aside, the fix for that is assignable mortgages where you could actually sell your home and your mortgage with the home you know you my mortgage is you know three percent so toby you buy my home you give me the down payment take over my mortgage uh, yeah well it's basically it, that's what an assignable we don't have them but they're talking about assignable mortgages well that's interesting you, hmm. you know for instance canada there is no such thing as a 30-year mortgage five years the largest most of them are you know one to three year you know europe right. certainly doesn't have 30-year mortgages uh god knows japan you can have a 50-year mortgage because everybody's going to live to 110 so they got to have some time there right but the, the, the average mortgage in australia is three years yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I say australia is the same thing and those prices are cray cray um but but you know just sort of getting back to the bond in the stock market 
we reasonably say that if you actually are an analyst who does discounted cash flow analysis and actually the numbers matter, that when interest, when risk-free interest yields go higher, let's say to this 5% level, then if I'm buying a growth stock whose you know, net present value, I'm discounting out 15 or 20 years, those equities should be lower because the risk-free number is higher. But yet we completely disregarded all that for three years, five years, 10 years, because we had this zero rate stuff. Yes, we, we did. And that is kind of coming back right now. You know, when you talk about that that discounting mechanism, that was a big story last year yeah. with a lot of the, why was the NASDAQ down so much? You know, the fancy term we use is that those were long duration stocks. Those, oh, what's a long duration stock? You know, it's a company whose cash flows are big way off in the future. You know, the, that's a growth stock yeah. as opposed to a cyclical stock whose cash flows are big right now. And when interest rates go up and you start discounting those future cash flows, it hurts those companies. That's why the NASDAQ was down so much last year. Well, then that got superseded by two letters, AI, and everybody got all excited about AI and none of that stuff matters anymore. But if you break down the stock market, we all know the phrases, you know, the magnificent seven is what we call them. Toby, you're old enough to remember the Nifty 50. I'm old enough to remember the Nifty 50. <laughs> Whatever up, we get the... If I wanted your opinion, I'd ask you about it, okay? Was that yeah. from the 1950s? Was... Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm just you're picturing Toby in a, you know, in a jumpsuit with a, with an afro right now. <laughs> and platform, platform shoes, you know. <laughs> but the reason That's I bring really... up Nifty 50, Magnificent Seven, is the history of Wall Street is Whenever we attached phrases like, like this, it's going to be a hell of a run for a little while, and then it's over with for a generation or two. And that might be the fear that I have about the Magnificent Seven. But getting back to my point, yeah. those seven stocks are two-thirds to three-quarters right. of the gain in the S&P. Right. If you take them out and look at the other 492 companies in the S&P, they're up 3% this year. Yeah. If you look at the Russell 2000, it's up 4% this year. If you look at the microcap, which is the bottom 1,000 companies in the Russell 2000, they're still down on the year, those companies. Uh, So you got seven companies that all they care about are two letters, AI, and everything else is like 4% on down as a group uh, to losses. That's interest rates. I believe that that is real because NVIDIA, Apple, Google... They're like central banks or governments. Yes. They don't care what interest rates are. Right. But, you know, the the retailer that you go shop at and all of those other companies that are down, the Joanne Fabrics of the world and stuff like that, that are down, uh, down the list, interest rates matter to them. And their companies are really, they're not, they're not suffering. They're just not doing a whole lot of anything right now mm. is well, what's been happening. And I think it's because of higher interest rates. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a good point, but let's go to the concentration thing. So Aurelio uh, um, Gonzalez, at um, he's now at, I, I always forget, he was a credit suite, so now he's at, at USB, right? U- UBS. UBS. He goes back into history, and he's one of those nerds, and he says, because I, I'd ask him the same question, and he said, well, Toby, to be honest with you, if you actually look at the data, every one of these big market moves have always had a concentrated group of you know, mega winners that made up uh, a significant part of the uh, market. It's just that it was not just seven, but we never had seven trillion stocks 
you know, seven stocks that represented what uh, 2.1 trillion. No, what am I saying? 6.1 trillion dollars of value. It just never happened. But the concentration level, as to your point, when people start, you know, snipping the uh, the juice and the pixie dust is flying and the sentiment is uh, just like uh, <clears throat> 1998 when Pets.com came out. Followed by what was the warehouse? What was the other one? Grocery, you know, other ones. That Where happens, been? right? And now the the retail <laughs> investor and the hedge fund and the momentum guys all become the marginal buyer of stocks, right? They're the ones who are not price sensitive. They're just buying momentum. As soon as everybody's bought, you know, it's like weak hands, strong mm -hmm. hands. I love that term because they're right. not strong hands. They're they're like, oh, did I think it's just too hot? I'm out. So, so that, that cycle couple, just happens because of these things that we have and right. green things and second wives and, you know, third houses. So a, <laughs> a couple of things there. Um, you, he's right. Every rally has some level of concentration to it because there's always a hot sector or theme that leads a rally. So that's true. But this rally is unlike, the concentration is unlike yeah. anything we've seen. By the way, those seven companies, Toby, it's not six and a half trillion. It's 11 trillion. Good, it's a okay. third. It's approaching a third of the S&P. A third. You buy spiders, you, know, you know, You don't know me that well, but I don't like to overstate things because, you know, I've done it for 25 years on television. And so people actually catch up with this stuff. It pisses me <laughs> off. But yeah, Thank so a, if you buy spiders or an S&P index fund, a third of what you own are those seven companies. And those companies, the gross amount that they've contributed to the rally is, to, by some metrics, a, a record. And yeah. you're right when it comes to momentum. On August 15th, all of the hedge funds had to report their 13F filings, which is their holdings. Um, their, their holdings in those seven companies is the highest it's ever been. Um, well, you know, because, because what analysts, remember, this is how a hedge fund works. You go to Harvard and you get really expensive people and you tell them to analyze the companies. And what they come back with is the higher the stock goes, the cheaper the company gets. The higher the company's go, stock goes, the more we must own it because they're all momentum players right. um, at the oh, end yeah. of the day. I can replace them. I can replace them with a $99 computer program, but uh, nobody wants to do that just yet. But that's that's well, essentially what they do. We'll start an ETF. <laughs> no, believe me they've already been started <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely well listen let's leave it there guys on this block um it definitely ran over but i, I do want to come back after the break with jim and ask him really i want you to touch on that three to three and a half percent target but i also want to get your thoughts on tomorrow's job report because that's going to be an exclusive that you're not going to get on all the other channels but with us today on buy whole south we have jim bianco founder and president of bianco research and we'll be back right after the break please stay with us Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. 
Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. This is Jessica from Jay Walker Salon Group, and you're watching Tobin and Todd from Buy, Hold, Sell. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Well, we have a very special featured guest with us today, Jim Bianca, founder and president of Bianca Research, is still with us on the show. And of course, Toby is with me as well. And he is out in lovely Park City, Utah. I know you're enjoying yourself on your vacation, Toby. My only Toby. collared shirt, by the way. This is the only collared shirt that I have. Well, you look sharp, that's for sure. Just because I sharp left dress it the last time I was there. Because I, I, everything else I got is, you know, Patagonia. There you go. Well, listen, in the last block, guys, and we'll get into all of that later on, Toby, about Park City. You got to send me a postcard as well. I but will, I listen, will. Jim, I want to I want to ask you, though, you, you sort of touched on that where you think maybe that target, the inflation target for the Fed might be three to three and a half percent. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, you did. And I would like Chairman Powell to explain to me why he still thinks two percent is an achievable goal. And what I mean by achievable is I mean long term. If you crap out the economy, sure, you'll get 2% inflation. But then when it recovers, it'll go up. So what are your well, thoughts? Jim, I, do you, do you, I, hold on, hold on, Toby. Here's the follow-up, though. Do you think we can hit 2%? Without, Not in with, this cycle. Let me, let, me back, okay. let me back up and explain what, I, what I, my premise here. The most important economic event of our lifetime, and our lifetimes go back a while here, was <laughs> 2020. It was shutting down the global economy and restarting it. Coming out of that, we have got major changes to the to the global economy. Changes, not dystopian, changes. Yeah. The biggest one that we're all aware of is remote work. It is a real thing. Bloomberg had a story last week that on any given day, one third of the desks in global offices are now empty on any given yeah. day because those people work from home. They're not going back to the office. This changes things. You and me and everybody else, we were home two days a week before the pandemic, Saturday and Sunday. Post-pandemic, we're home Saturday and Sunday, and probably two days work from home, three days in the office. 
I've doubled the amount of work that a time I'm at home. You know what that means? My lifestyle, my consumption basket, my outlook has fundamentally changed. Ask the retailers. They are still struggling with rent, with inventories and what to put on the shelves. What does a consumer want in 23? It ain't what they bought in 2019 because they live a different lifestyle now because yeah. they're home four days a week, not two days a week. The supply chains have to change because of that. Supply chains are very, and now I know this is controversial, they're brittle. They're very brittle. It's difficult to change. If you are a retailer and you say, hey, I need more red sweaters, less green sweaters, no problem. You'll have them next week. But if you are a retailer and say, I don't need sweaters at all, I need more pants, and I need you to deliver them to Charleston, South Carolina's port, not Los Angeles port, the supply chain tells you three years to make those changes. And that's what we're undergoing right now with the supply chain. And so all of that friction is leading to higher costs. Yeah. It is also... Part of the reason why probably the most lag, the story that doesn't get enough coverage is what's happening in China. In December, China opened up. They ended zero COVID. They used to weld doors shut in China and not let people out of the house. Well, they opened them up, right? And everybody said, this is it. The China economy is going to boom. It fell apart right after that. How did that happen? When you let everybody out of the house, that it actually got worse. Part of the problem is, that there's this epic change because we're in a post-COVID world. Now, how do you fix that? It's very, it's simple to say, hard to do. We need to restructure the economy. We need to spend a lot of money changing to the post-COVID world. The problem is more people like Dave Solomon at Goldman Sachs, he's the head of Goldman Sachs or Jamie Dimon, would rather argue with you for two years whether or not anything needs to change you know, you're all lazy, get out of your pajamas and come back to the office. There's some problem solved. That's what they think the answer is, as opposed to this is more like 1946. We're no longer going to be making Sherman tanks anymore. We need to start thinking about what we're going to do next. We need to start doing that now with our economy. This is a post-COVID economy. It is different, not dystopian, different. But we don't want to. We want to ask, when is everybody going to go back to work? When is everything going to go back to normal? When are office prices going to rebound, you know, in all of this stuff? When is inflation going to go back to 2%? All of these questions are predicated on nothing of significance happened in 2020, where I'm arguing, no, it was the most significant event of our lifetime, and we need to understand that event. Yeah. Jim, I'm totally with you. I, I don't know if you can see this book. I don't know how that works. This is um, this is from Peter Can't Zayn. The, the end of the world is just beginning. Great book. I finished it a few months ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Peter and I have had this, this conversation since I read his first book about eight years ago. I would first off like to say that I think you're absolutely right. Number two, I guarantee you that Solomon and the other guys haven't read any of Peter Zayn's books. They they don't want things to change. They don't. Right. They like they liked 2019 when they, they were in plus, control. You know, they're 60 plus years old. They've been doing it the same way. What I have to learn new tricks. But the other right. one in this deglobalization wave. I mean, we're up in in our money management firm and in our newsletters, etc. You know, we, we 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 my company's called Transformity Research, and the concept is is that when you have these great inflections of transformational secular change, you need to adapt your strategy, right? So while the world was going to ship, you know, we we're up four or five hundred percent. Why? Because gosh, we fairly much figured out that when we got a call about the pandemic in China in early January, and you then five million people leave the airport every day, that this was going to be global. So we sort of positioned for that and did well. Then when you know we got calls from our network about 
that January 28th was, or excuse me, February 24th was going to be the invasion day because we have people, you know, who come for those three-letter government agencies. Again, they, they don't have that information. What they have is the Harvard MBAs who don't actually know anybody who gets their hands dirty out in the real world, and they weren't prepared. So now they sort of came, in my mind, to your point, they sort of said, hey, 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 hey. you know, <laughs> I want to go back. I want to go back. This isn't fair. <clears throat> and guess what? If we're going to deglobalize manufacturing and you're Walmart, and to your point, you could call and say, hey, Jing Zhang, will you send us 100,000 white sweaters because we're selling the crap out of them? I don't know what's going on. Maybe, you know, and he says, sure, when do you want them? Like five days, great, boom, we'll just put them on Atlas there and you'll get them. Not there anymore. It, it can't be there anymore. And, and and then, of course, we're doing this EV revolution. And who owns all the lithium? Who has all the galenium? You know, blah, blah, you know. So I'm totally with you. It's what bugs the hell out of me about the Fed is they're just as stubborn as the Wall Street Investment Bank leaders that I wanted to go back the way it was, even though we've had a secular, not cyclical change. And they even came out and said, oh, this is just a secular. Remember, you know, we were just uh, uh, we just had a, a, you know, a cyclical thing and it's going to all that inflation's going away. They've been proven mm -hmm. dead wrong. How could they not come out with a new forecast that says, no, these, these are secular changes? I, you know, I agree. And that's why I, I want to emphasize when Chairman Powell keeps saying we're committed to our 2 percent target. I, I scream at the TV every time I hear him. Why do you think that's a valid target? It was a valid target before the pandemic, because, you know, empirically, you could see that we were hovering around those levels. But why do you think that nothing of significance happened in 2020 to think that everything that was will be? Why is that target still work? And then they go on this interminable forensic analysis of used car prices <laughs> did this and home prices did that. And mm -hmm. I find it insufferable because if the target is no longer 2% and it's three, none of that analysis matters. If it is 2%, none of that analysis matters because we're going back to 2% anyway. Well, it's all a big waste of time. It's the I, game we play, but it doesn't mean yeah, anything. Oh, Jim, you know, remember That's a valid the, point. The other points were China came into the World Trade Organization 2003, 2004, right? And under George Bush, by the way, the Republicans seem to have forgot that. And, um, you know, we started this incredible deglobalization. We know incredible, you know, that the, you can go to Walmart and get the $9 shirt that used to cost 25 bucks and so on and so forth. So we had disinflation or deflation of product prices that fed through the economy, yada, yada, yada. That's no longer. So by definition, if the reason why we stayed at 2%, they couldn't figure out why we were always had this 2% inflation rate. Well, now they figured it out. And now they're saying, and our goal is now 2% again. And I, I, I'm with you. I'm in that same camp. Yeah. Uh, a, number one. And then finally, Tom, quick. Yeah, go ahead. The argument always on the other side is that, well, if they say they're going to 3%, then the bond market is going to lose itself. They're going to take a crap because they're, they, you know, their formula says it's going to be 2%. How do you respond to that, Jim? Well, I first of all, Chairman Powell has made it very clear they're not going to change their target to 3%. Yeah. They lose all credibility. So yeah. that is not going to happen. But if they did move their target to 3%, then basically what they would be arguing is the bond market would, you know, or the stock market wants to believe, oh, good, now they're done. And then they could cut rates because they're pretty close to that target of 3% or or so. I mean, it's a, it would be, that's the argument that they would try to use. But, you know, I'll just come back to, he's made it painfully clear 
You can argue that the new target is, I think that the new reality is 3%. The Fed still thinks the reality is two. And that's really what needs to be answered. But he's made it clear, they're not moving that target. They are just not going to do it in this environment right now. Well, I played, Do you see I that? To Hold on, Governor Todd. They, they didn't allow me. They, they told me to get lost. So, um, And I think Bianco's now lost his chance to be a Fed governor too here. So, <laughs> Did you know I interviewed to be Guy's a Fed brilliant. governor in 2019? I said, I, I said you, did you know that uh, I, I went into the White House to talk to National Economic Council Larry Kudlow at the time in 2019 to interview for a job as the Fed governor? Oh, well, they missed their chance as far as I'm concerned, Jim. They missed their chance. They took Judy Shelton instead of me, and yeah, then she didn't say. make it through Congress. However, your forehead would be about five inches flatter from you just hitting against the wall every day. So, yeah. You're a Cubs fan, so Congress would have let you through, really. So. Right. <laughs> a quick question, though. Do you see them? Do you see the Fed cutting rates next year, especially no. in a political year? No, no. because the, no, the, the only rate, the Fed only cuts rates the last three cycles. They cut rates. And Toby told me I could say this. Yeah. They cut rates when everything is falling apart and people are shitting their pants. Yeah. That's the only time they cut rates. The two yeah. times in the 90s that they said, okay, mission accomplished, we cut rates. The stock market was up 40% in 95. And then in 96, Greenspan started talking about irrational exuberance. And they did it in 98, and the, and the NASDAQ was up 85% the next year. The Fed will not cut rates because they've achieved their goal. They will hold for that. They will hold at that higher level until the shit hits the fan, and then they panic. That's the only, So what I've said to people is the worst time to own stocks is when the Fed is cutting rates because everything's hitting the fan, and you don't, and they're trying to stop it, and they can't. Now I've said that. Remember, they're not cutting rates now. Yeah. So I don't understand this argument. Wall Street is trying to tell the Fed, please destroy my portfolio by cutting rates next year, because that's the only way. The only way they cut rates is when things are going bad. So I don't think they're going to do it, because I also don't think we're going to have a recession in the next year. Um, but if we have a recession, then they'd cut rates. One of the reasons I don't think we're going to have a recession is I actually think we had the recession a year ago yeah, when we had the two negative quarters. And the 20% correction in the stock market. Then we had everybody writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying that wasn't a recession. Actually, that was. <laughs> you know, and, and this argument that the recession is around the corner, actually, it isn't. Um, you know, now that I've said that, people get all, oh, does that mean then that we got eight years of rally in the stock market? No, you can have corrections all the time in the stock market without a recession. But I, I think that no recession from this moment forward means strong demand. Which means, which means pushing inflation towards that three yeah. percent, pushing the ten-year towards five percent. Jim, I'm going to I'm going to send you a, a a report what we did this year because I was trying to get my head around this, and finally when I sort of did the math on the fact that that first off there's you know 63 counties in, in the United States that produce 73 percent of GDP, so that is a huge you know keeps the ballast going, and then we I have, have about 3,500 counties just to yeah, put that right, number exactly. in perspective. Yeah. And then we have 30, uh, we have about 93 million uh, people and about 78 million households that are mm -hmm. getting monthly checks, either from, you know, Social Security or their pension plan or 401ks, which their parents never had, yada, yada, yada. And when you put all that math in there, that to me is the guardrail of the U.S. economy that we never had before. And again, the 115 mm -hmm. economists at the Fed haven't figured that out. I, I did it. And, you know, I asked, Bard google.com to figure it out for him i mean it's it's not yeah. that hard 
hard. Right. Yeah. So uh, final question, Jim, but before we end the show, I have to ask you about tomorrow's jobs report. I, I still can't figure out how the BOS can actually come up with the actual number, considering the month just ended today and they're going to report it tomorrow at 830 uh, Eastern time. But uh, consensus right now on Wall Street is plus 170,000 jobs. What's your number? So the reason that they could come up with the number tomorrow is that the survey week is the week of the 13th. So they did the surveys. Uh, Remember, this, the payroll report is a survey. They call 60,000 businesses and ask them how many people they employ. They did it the week of the 13th. That's why they could come up with the number. You're right. The consensus is 170,000. I've been kind of on the idea that the number is going to beat. It's going to be better than 170,000. It has been 14 of the last 15 months. It has been better than expected. Now, why has that number been so much stronger? I'll go back real quick that in the post-pandemic economy, jobs have changed. Jobs are more transactional. Maybe you and me, we have careers and we kind of think about, you know, it's trying to plot out a career. But for a lot of people, work has now become transactional. I'll take a job at a big box retailer for a few months, save up some money, go to Florida for the summer, for the winter. And then in the spring, I'll get another job. And, and so you've got much more churn and turnover. The labor market is not the way it used to be. And that's why you're seeing low initial claims that they were recording. We got one of the lowest initial 228,000 on initial claims, mm -hmm. which is one of the lowest of the year. Uh, and we've been beating on these payroll numbers. I think it's because the nature of the jobs market is more transactional. There's a lot more churn, which gives you a lot higher numbers. So my structural bias is whatever the consensus is on Wall Street, take the over. And the over has been right 14 in the last 15 months. So I'll continue to take the over. And we'll find out from the time of recording. We'll find out in about sixteen hours if that works. <laughs> hey, Tom, when we have Jim back, I want to I want to build on this. What's different now? What has irrevocably changed? And yeah, the labor market. Seen... The labor market. That's yeah. the big and, one and that's the changed. Labor model is is number one. All right, number two. You know, we still have one and a half times more. You know, you know, people. Excuse me, jobs than people. And no one's talked about the demographics. No one's talked about the 15,000 boomers turning, you know, 50, 65 or 70 every day until 2032. That's no another show. About the low infertility rates. They're all running for the Senate, right? Isn't that what we have to worry? Is that, <laughs> right, they're all running for a, the Senate. A guy who has a freaking, you know, spasm every two weeks. Right, right, right. You know, uh, uh uh, the Onion had a great line about that one, or there was the Babylon Bee that had a great line on that one, family deciding whether to put grandpa in hospice or run him for Senate. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's let's wonderful. Let's leave it there. Well, yeah, let's leave it there on that note, definitely. So so uh, <laughs> that was very good, actually. So uh, so thanks again, Jim Bianco. You are, you've been wonderful, a wonderful guest. Great conversation. We thank you so much for joining us today on Buy, Hold, So, and we definitely would like to have you back. Uh, sometime sure. soon. I that, enjoyed it great. anytime. I enjoyed it anytime, guys. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, listen, uh, thanks again for joining us uh, to everyone out there and, um, and have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll catch you next time. Next week, we have Katie Stockton is going to be joining us as our feature guest. And uh, we'll get a little bit further into uh, interest rates with her as well. So thanks again. And we'll catch you next time. Take care. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But 
how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.